The podcasting industry is growing by the day. You want to stake your claim? Well, check out PodU Podcasting to learn how to use your voice to create impact. Go to www.disruptingbalance.com slash PodU. That's P-O-D-U. And follow PodU Podcasting on Instagram for tips to help you get started. Remember, that's Pod U Podcasting. Your voice, your impact. Did you know that the podcasting industry is growing by the day? Do you want to stake your claim in it? Well, you should check out Pod U Podcasting to learn how to use your voice to create impact. Go to www.disruptingbalance.com slash pod you. That's P-O-D-U. And follow PodU Podcasting on Instagram for tips to help you get started. Remember, that's PodU Podcasting. Your voice, your impact. Hello and welcome to the Disrupting Balance Podcast with Hanifa Barnes. It's me, I'm your host, a multicultural mama, wife, and leader. And here is where we amplify the stories of multicultural women who are unraveling from tradition to make the switch in work, well-being, and winning. I made the switch. Former professional actor turned lawyer turned education executive, and I'm not done yet. Join in on the conversation and learn how you can unravel from your stuff to make the switch, disrupt balance, and win. Today in the Disrupting Balance chair, we have Nicole Smart. Nicole Smart is a woman truly defined by her surname. An immigrant from the twin island of Trinidad and Tobago, Nicole was able to catapult her career into roles with the state of New York, Deloitte, the National Football League, and the NCAA. She is a proud Caribbean Black woman who developed her grit and tenacity growing up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn in the 80s and being subject to ridicule for her accent and her attempts to assimilate and code switch. As a first-generation college graduate from New York University and later Cornell University, Nicole found a way to connect the challenges of her journey into triumphs of a story that she feels blessed to continually unfold. So hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Disrupting Balance podcast. It is a new episode in a new season and in a new year. I am so excited you've joined me, and I'm so excited for our guest today. We have none other than Nicole Smart. How are you doing, Nicole? I am blessed. I am blessed. Thank you for asking. That is That is good. I'm glad. And we're going to jump right into this because I know folks are already waiting to hear. What is your story? (laughs) So my story essentially is that, um, and I I feel it's important to mention this because it really defines who I am as a person, where I am originally from the twin island of Trinidad and Tobago. I came to this country um, at the young age of about eight or nine years old. Uh, So very uh, young age. Moving into a new culture, 
not having supportive uh, structures when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion um, as, as you know, the way we work, as a way of life, and really having that define who I am as an individual. So I pride myself on the fact that I'm an immigrant from the twin island of Trinidad and Tobago. I'm a citizen of the United States, and the work that I do when it comes to helping leaders and organizations foster their diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and initiatives is uh, essentially a labor of love grounded on that experience that I had as an immigrant um, with my first experience within the United States. Yeah, I think that is amazing because it's not often that folks are, I think, blessed enough to be able to tie back their current experiences as an adult when it comes to their profession to their roots and their their experiences as a child. So I think it's a very special place for you to be in because you really have a sincerely informed place to operate from in doing this work. Absolutely. So before we jump into the work, let's talk a little bit more, more about those experiences growing up and not having those resources. In the moment, in the time, did you realize there was a difference? Did you realize that, you know, there were, you needed more in that experience? Well, uh, you know, I felt like I had no choice because prior to getting here, there was a level of uh, projection of perceptions of going to America, right? Um, On the islands, as we say, where I'm from, Uh, there was a level coming from that side. As a young kid, you know, you're trying to figure it out. And again, eight or nine years old, right? I'm still coming into myself, but understanding what's happening. And then getting here and trying to assimilate to a culture where we didn't have much family members here. I didn't have any friends. Uh, My parents were hard workers and um, did what they can to make sure that we were comfortable within this new culture. But again, you know, when when you think about the the public school system, for example, Think about the early 80s and what that was like in the public school system for a new kid coming into a new country with an accent coming from a place that, um, you know, the climate, the weather was different. You know, when we moved to the United States, it was in the middle of of winter in December, moving to an impoverished area of Brooklyn, New York. Crown Heights is where I grew up for the first 10 years of my life and being exposed to a lot of things. That has formed the way that I see the world when it comes to, you know, the hip hop culture, the black community, and also trying to navigate even uh, the way that I talked. You know, when I came to this country, I had an accent and, you know, in, in my native tongue, whatever I go back home, as we say, it, it comes out naturally. And some people say that they still can hear it. But when I think about being in the school and, you know, just trying to fit in and having this accent being made fun of. And then when I talk the way I talk now, being called the white girl. So I was constantly Mm. trying to fit in to a culture that um, rejected me somewhat, you know, even though I was from a black community, but um, it was just just something that I was always trying to fight. And I I think it, it took about 10 years for me to actually kind of settle in as far as being a part of the American culture. And it's, it's constantly evolving um, in, in the spirit of my work and what I do and the spaces that I'm in and the accesses that I have. But it's something that's constantly evolving. And I, I, I kind of still struggle with a little bit when it comes to the foundation of, of first uh, assimilating into the culture. Yeah. And so let's touch on that thing about, you know, sounding like a white girl, because Mm -hmm. for me, I remember that vividly as well, growing up in my own household with an East African father, West African mother, and being 
told to speak properly. Um, I, and in some instances I felt like, oh, they tell me I speak white. Maybe that's a good thing. But then in other instances, I was like, well, I don't know if that's a good thing because I don't sound like the people that look like me. So for you, do you recall your feelings around that? Like, did you feel like that was something good or did you feel like confused or did you feel like it was just negative? Well, it was projected projected in um, like a non-celebratory way when it was said. So I understood what, what it meant, right? In terms of, you know, and, and not to say that there's nothing wrong with sounding like a white individual, but the way that it was projected, it's, it stifled my voice. And because I, you know, read um, to a certain level of, of capacity within my respective grade levels, the teachers would always call on me to, to talk. And, you know, I would get angry at the teachers <laughs> for calling on me to talk because mm-hmm. I would be put in a place where I would have to be made fun of. I would be ridic- ridiculed and trying to fit in. So it stifled my voice. Mm-hmm. And when you think about diversity, equity, inclusion right now within the workplace and people, you know, something as simple as not being their authentic selves in the workplace, it's, it stifles your voice. And that's actually what I went through from a very young age. So think about how that has played a role in a lot of the um, hesitance that I've made uh, within even my career or being complacent about a lot of things because my voice was was stifled from a very young age. Something as simple as that. Wow. And and it's kind of ironic to me because, I mean, we've met, we've talked and you are a very, you seem like an extrovert, very communicative. Thank you. You convey your points clearly. And you have a very, like, I think I told you this the first time I saw you, you when you walk <laughs> into the place, I'm like, whoa, your energy, your presence is, you, is full, right? right? So what was the transition point then? Because you say you were this young girl who, mm-hmm. whose voice was stifled. Do you recall that transition point? So the transition point for me was conforming to what the social construct thought I needed to validate who I was as an individual. So for example, um, going back to college where I'm a non-traditional student, first in my family to graduate college and then go on to grad school. I'm an alumni of New York University and uh, Cornell for uh, my master's. And uh, just really fitting in where I've constantly been told that what you you do or say wouldn't matter unless you have a degree to a certain extent, especially when it comes to career. I was very career driven and driven, and I'm I'm pretty certain I got that from my mom, where mm-hmm. you know she was always striving to do more and do more and do more in a lot of different areas. And my dad as well; they both had very strong work ethics. But it was the the you know acquirement of the degrees that made me feel more confident made me feel that I had a place because I was constantly told my life, in addition to everything else that I experienced, that um, if you're looking to advance within a career or do more, be taken seriously, you have to have these credentials. So I think that's when I became more empowered as an individual. And interestingly enough, this was in my 30s, my late 30s, -hmm. actually. Yeah. Hmm. So So what was the driver for you um, for pursuing those degrees and at those institutions, do you think a, a piece of that was 
kind of the immigrant component or was it more so about trying to fit in those spaces? I think it was a combination. You know, it was more so my mom at a very young age where she didn't want to project too much, but she did uh, respect the value of an education. And uh, because I didn't leave right from high school to go into college, you know, she'd say, so, you know, are you thinking about college? So what's happening with going back to school? So were you getting your degree? You know, that kind of thing. And I've always been fortunate enough to have uh, full-time job opportunities, but it was that part. And it was also, again, just the, the, the constant barrage of, of, of not having a place within corporate America, uh, corporate America per se, uh, and not having that degree to really excel. So the drive, in addition to everything else that I mentioned, you know, as far as uh, making my mom proud and uh, my dad as well and my two younger siblings, I have two younger brothers where I'm the oldest, but they tend to always uh, remind me that they're running things, not me. Um, <laughs> and I love them dearly. But um, the driver, again, essentially was just really having that place and um, knowing it was something that I had to do in order to excel within a career. I always, you know, I'm a spiritual person as well. So I, I you know, you always feel or one or I have um, always felt that I had uh, or have a greater calling in addition to what I do right now. And part of that journey required that I take advantage of opportunities that uh, I was given to actually get those credentials and um, use it because again, the social con construct tells you otherwise and it will reject you very quickly as I learned at a very young age. So having those things in place to really fit in or um, assimilate somewhat. And I know when we talk mm -hmm. about diversity, we talk about you know, ad, you know, culture ad and not really um, conforming, but it was something that I had to do to get to where I am today, given mm -hmm. the fact that I'm a Generation Xer. I had all of these things against me when it comes to being um, a person with a multicultural background, coming from a different country, living in an impoverished neighborhood where I, you know, during the summer when we would have summer break, I wouldn't know if my classmates were going to make it back to school in the fall because my classmates were constantly uh, victims of violence, crime, or uh, getting locked up every year. So it's, it's, it's a pretty rough life, but it helped shape who I am today. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so let's um, transition a little bit and talk about corporate America, because you've had extensive experience working and in and navigating through corporate America, as a Black woman, as an immigrant woman, as a multicultural woman, with all these intersections you brought into these spaces and you've been able to find success. So let's talk about the beginning stages of your entry point into corporate America and what that was for you. So my first full-time uh, job was working for a consulting company that focused on an affirmative action program. So I started my career working in affirmative action, where I know it's not the same thing uh, as diversity, equity, and inclusion as we define it today, but that's where I started. And um, the first five years, I learned uh, what it meant in that space to be a Black individual and not have access to opportunities without supportive structures in place, right? So that's how I, I started my career, and I later evolved into mm -hmm. Other companies, you know, working at uh, Deloitte Tushtamatsu's global HR department for about three to four years, I think it was, 
um, and learning how they were actually ahead of the game in a lot of respects when it when it comes to um, having these resources, training, and supportive structures for people of various cultures and backgrounds. So when you think of how, mm-hmm. when you think of the, the the fabric that was weaved when uh, it comes to my career trajectory, every aspect of my career fits into the um, acumen, the business acumen, uh, the DEI uh, competencies that I have when it comes to being able to really pr- project and help uh, do this work comes from something as simple as very early on in learning how to facilitate and support an affirmative action program for uh, minority women-owned and small business contractors. Mm-hmm. And so was it just a natural progression or was it something during the process where you were like, yeah, I'll take this opportunity. It seems interesting. Or was it more the natural intentional progression of, yeah, this is the work. I like it. I want those opportunities. I think it was unconscious when I think about it. Uh, because as, as I look back on my career trajectory, everything that I've done fits into the DEI space, you know, affirmative action, global HR, even though I spent a, a significant amount of time in professional sports, um, everything that I did, whether it was my day-to-day role, I found some area to support an organization's initiative when it when it came to diversity inclusion in the workplace without it without them calling it that, right? In some capacity, mm-hmm. it was something that happened naturally. You know, I've been in places where I was offered job opportunities but didn't take it because something in my spirit didn't feel right. Not to say that from an, an integrity perspective, it was just something that wasn't tied to uh, those career anchors and those values that I have in wanting to be supportive of whatever the greater agenda was to some capacity or having that access to have a greater influence within the role that I had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, I wonder, just listening to you talk and kind of your, your overall perspective in this process, I know you have experience, so you kind of on the other side and can really look back and reflect and kind of encapsulate all this. But I guess my question is, why do you think um, we're seen as victims? You mentioned this in our pre-call, how Mm -hmm. some look at us as victims, or even in in some instances, we see ourselves as victims. What is that mentality about? Well, I would say that um, that aligns with the equality or equity aspect when it comes to the E and DEI, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. And just feeling somewhat of a victim where we should have, why why can't Nicole Smart have the same opportunities as the person sitting next to me that has the same academic credentials and experience, but they're Mm -hmm. on a faster career, career track because of their race? You know, and it's just really those things as as simple as uh, as I just analyzed, where when you feel that you're a victim um, in any capacity when it comes to, to the circumstances, for example, microaggressions that happens in the workplace. You know, when I tell people I'm not from this country um, or if I'm speaking to uh, someone who does not identify as a, a black or brown individual, and uh, would say where I'm from, the first thing I hear is, wow, you're very, you know, you speak really good English. Wow. Or you're very, um, I hear it all the time. Oh, you're, you're so articulate, which can be a compliment, wow. but you wouldn't, I, I would guarantee you wouldn't actually say that to someone that is mm-hmm. your peer or equal. And I'm very mm-hmm. conscious of that. And the more I do this work, the more mindful 
I am of the way we engage when it comes to daily occurrences that happen mm. unintentional. And in, in some cases, unconsciously, because some people are never called out. And then when I call it out, it's like, wow, you know, I never realized that. And then the, the apology comes in. But, you know, as a, as a Caribbean Black, I identify as Caribbean Black, uh, not African-American, obviously. And mm-hmm. um, I love to use that preface of Caribbean because I'm very uh, proud of my my uh, native country and where I'm from. And I, I still absorb a lot of the heritage um, that that exudes. But, you know, when you think about, um, you know, just something as simple as identity, gender identity is a big thing right now yeah. uh, within the United States where it's, it's brought out to the forefront. It's not to say it wasn't there before, but people are actively speaking more about gender identity in the workplace. And, you know, when you think about these things that are that are coming out, Think about what has happened where, where again, having that voice that's been stifled and not being able to have those supportive structures and, 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 you know, be authentic in the workplace or be able to be your authentic self and even sometimes social settings as well. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a slippery slope unconsciously, yeah. but again, microaggressions mm-hmm. play a big part of that as well when it comes to the daily occurrences and maybe learning how to, and, and I, I would say this for myself, um, just learning how to just brush it off and not addressing it, yeah. but I'm actually doing more damage than, than um, helping myself by doing that. So, yeah. 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 I'm glad you brought up that term microaggressions. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, one I recall in my own experience is I remember whenever my husband and I would take the kids out to a restaurant there was always someone who was not a person of color always saying your children are so well behaved. (laughs) And at the time, you know, microaggressions wasn't a catch term. It wasn't a thing, Mm -hmm. but I, I always felt some kind of way about that. Like, what are you trying to say? Exactly. You know? And so that really, you bringing that up helped to jog that memory and I don't get it anymore. But I do recall that and the feelings around that. But yep. it's a real thing. Yeah. And all it, yeah. the, the, the term yeah. behind you know? it, it's, it's a real thing. And it's important to raise that level of awareness because, you know, especially, uh, you know, with the barriers and, and the structural racism and uh, everything systemically that, that impedes um, Black women from moving forward or Black people in general from moving forward. When you think about that, it, these are these are things that that are factors, and you know they call it micro, but it, they're not really micro if it's if it's something that can impact your mental health yeah. and the way that you make decisions about how you gate, engage with others, yeah. or even um, code switching, just the way that you talk in certain exactly. social set, settings. All of that is just really important to really be mindful of that, and then you can kind of like break the mental the mental fight that you have within yourself. But these are, these are natural occurrence occurrences and they're very dangerous when you think about yeah. it. Very yeah. dangerous. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So for, for the listeners, I really want to kind of capture your academic uh, experience because many people think that women who are dynamic, who have all these great opportunities, they think that women did it kind of, the way you're supposed to do it. You know, I graduate high school, then I go to college, then I, you know, that is the assumption, you know, but you mentioned earlier that you went back to school later. Mm -hmm. So talk about that decision to do that. Mm 
right? And then by extension of that, I want you to talk about the idea in certain cultures, probably a lot of cultures, about not sharing your greatness and your accolades. Oh, that's a big one. (laughs) Okay, so I'll start with... um going back to school. So during that time, I, uh, I again, worked in, in pro sports. I, I worked at the NFL. And because of being around so many impressionable people, uh, very smart individuals, I, I still uh, project a lot of what I've learned uh, within uh, my time there. But being around um, such impressionable people and you know, you know, being around individuals who, oh, you know, this is my college experience and this is what I did. I I couldn't add anything, add anything to the conversation. And, you know, my accent just came out a little bit Um, when, you know, I couldn't add anything to the conversation. And, you know, that drive where there was something, again, I'm a very spiritual individual. And then there was that drive inside of me, like, and you can't fight it if you're a spiritual person, there's a higher calling, there's a sense of purpose that you feel. Um, and, uh, I decided to just see what was out there in terms of an education degree or academic degree degree that I could acquire while working full time. And that's how I found, uh, NYU's program where it gave me the opportunity mm-hmm. to go to school full time. And I kid you not, I worked full time and I went to school full time. Oh my I had classes on the weekend from, I'd say, six to 10, two or three days a week sometimes, or some semesters. I believe I had a couple of, couple of Saturday classes, but I knew I had to get it done. And I didn't take a break mm-hmm. in, in between. You know, I, I started with one or two credits here and there within um, uh, McEvers College. But given where I lived at the time, it was very hard for me to leave work and get to that location on time to make it in class on time. So I had to figure out what made sense in terms of being able to make it to class on time and then getting home at a decent hour. So NYU was the the greater fit. One of the Mm -hmm. things about the NYU experience is that it was very inclusive. Um, I started, I believe, oh, dating myself. So around 2000, I wanna say five or 2006 Mm -hmm. was the time I started there. And um, it was very inclusive, a diverse group of students within the classrooms. I felt welcome uh, in terms of people wanting to hear what I had to say. And as, they could, as you can imagine, you know, the, the girl that, that works at the NFL is in my classroom. You know, I would hear it all the time. So they, mm-hmm. they wanted to hear what I had to say, right? Which raised mm-hmm. another level of um, uh, access to opportunity. But I will say that... Um, Going, it it was difficult, as you can imagine, but there was something in me that said, okay, this is just four years of your life and I'll be rewarded for it. And then when I was done, I wait to figure out what the next step was, where I thought about law school for a little bit. And I, I don't know why I did this to myself, but I took the LSAT twice. And um, it was an interesting, exactly. So you get it, right? <laughs> it was an interesting yeah. experience. And something as simple as having a mentor in terms of me doing my due diligence and wanting to, you know, uh, figure out what I wanted to do as far as the next step and having, um, and I kid you not, my, my mentor at the time was an executive at Major League Baseball. And she said to me, you don't necessarily, I don't necessarily need to have a law degree to do what I want to do in my career. Yeah. And that is yep. what made me find um, 
Cornell University and, you know, the rest is history. So that, that was the motivator for, the motivator for going back to school, getting my degree. Um, it was a really interesting experience. I still am very proud of the moment to have my mom and dad there and experience that and be at Yankee Stadium and, and see me graduate. It, it was yeah. just amazing. And then yeah. um, when it comes to the second part of your question in terms of being great, quote unquote, quote unquote, great, right? That can mean different things to different people, uh, success as well. But when it comes to the successes that I have in life, I struggle with sharing that with people. And mm -hmm. I struggle only because I am not imagining this where I have been told um, on a number of occasions, people don't necessarily want to hear because they weren't able to achieve what you've achieved, yeah. right? Yeah. And I feel that I've done such amazing things and I'm proud of that, but I'm still being somewhat ridiculed for it, where I can't even share in those mm -hmm. experiences with some people that are very close to me. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for fear of resistance, for fear of people being judgmental or whatever the situation is. I, again, I'm not imagining this because I was actually told by several people, not everyone wants to hear that because they were not able to do some of the things that I've done. Uh, within my career. So it's pretty interesting when you, when you think about it. So here I am being stifled in my voice and uh, not being able to be in uh, a space where I can be my authentic self, even with maybe friends or family members to that mm -hmm. capacity. Because again, first in my family to graduate college and go to grad school. And it was because I simply, you know, um, you know, felt the courage and, um, you know, that spirit within to, to give me the strength and power that I needed to, to get through and do what I needed to do. So it's pretty sad when you think about it, but that's, that's just my experience. And I'm, I'm sure that's the experiences and to your listeners, someone yeah. may be able to identify with that as well, but it's, it's a real thing where, you know, you struggle and not struggle enough within your race, but then when you reach a certain level or, uh, certain successes, it, it's not celebrated to a certain degree in certain spaces uh, because of who wasn't able to, to get to that point, mm -hmm. you know? I, I do, I do find that because my husband and I had this discussion actually a couple days ago mm -hmm. around um, sharing in those experiences. And part of it was there was this introduction that was happening and I was saying, you know, we should share our experiences. And we felt some kind of way initially because we're thinking about our audience and what if other people don't have those experiences and what if they assume we're trying to, you know, be um, arrogant and flaunt. And then it got to a point where I said, you know what? No, it's about my intention. My intention is none of that. I said, I don't know who I can bless by sharing that experience. There could be someone on this call that wants to inquire with me, how did I do this? Or how do I get in here? Or how do I do these things? And so I made a conscious effort to think about my intentionality and then just say what I have to say, you know? You um, yeah. yeah. But you know, it doesn't work in every instance. Like you said, exactly. family is different. Exactly. Family is different. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. Cause I would imagine for you, you share it in with, in your professional spaces. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In, in my professional spaces, 
um, things I've accomplished, uh, things that I'm continuing to do to this day. You know, I just don't, you know, we have social media and it's like, Hey, everybody look at me, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, before I hit, before I hit, um, you know, post, I have to think five or six times, like how is this going to be <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just, uh, yeah. it, it's just a, a funny thing where I'm still working on it, but I'm conscious of it. And when you become more conscious of, of something, you can, uh, you know, be more mindful of decisions. But again, you know, and it's interesting, this, this, um, this podcast is, is actually therapy for me because I, I really didn't realize how much I was still stifling my voice to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about, for our listeners, mm-hmm. you mentioned it throughout, let's talk about diversity inclusion because some people may think, well, oh, well, maybe it's just a buzz term. Every five minutes on LinkedIn, I'm saying, hey, this person is a chief diversity this, this right. person is a chief diversity that. What is diversity and inclusion? Why is it important? So it's very important because when you think of the workplace within any respective role, industry, profession, however you look at it, you have people. And when you have people, you have diversity. Now, what is diversity? Let's think about it in terms of its definition within the workplace, right? And organizations intend to uh, ensure that they have a diverse demographic uh, makeup of people of various races, age, gender, sexual orientation, identity, uh, you know, disability status, veteran status, the secondary dimensions, because they're primary dimensions, things that we can't really change, you know, when it comes to our Mm -hmm. race and our age. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the secondary dimensions, when it comes to marital status, parental status, uh, socioeconomic status, education status, um, professional experience, et cetera. So that is um, diversity in a nutshell. And then when you think about inclusion, I always say this, inclusion is the invisible thread that binds it all together. Just making sure that you have uh, supportive structures in place, that people feel uh, valued within the workplace. They have the necessary support to thrive, be their authentic self. Uh, Belonging is a new term that's being uh, thrown around, but feeling a sense of belonging in the workplace is, is a key part of this as well. And then we all know about the many benefits that diversity and inclusion brings when it comes to the abundance of research uh, in support of innovation, creativity, um, and, you know, all the amazing things that it it brings to the forefront. But in simple terms, you can think about it as something simple as being invited to to dinner, right? So diversity is being invited to uh, to dinner or inviting people of of various uh, identities, however you identify the dinner, but making sure, and inclusion is making sure that they have a seat at the dinner table and that you have Mm. enough food to go around and that you're introducing them and they're just not invited and people don't know why you're at the dinner table. You know, it's all of that uh, made up in that space. Mm. So it's important because, for example, within the United States, when you think of the changing demographics where there are shifts that are going to be made in terms of the um, age medium, in, in terms of the uh, Hispanic community. Uh, mm-hmm. People right now, there are five generations within the workplace from traditionalists to, um, you know, Gen Z, you know. So when you think about that, you can hire for diversity. You want to have a workplace. Employees can hire for diversity where you know, they want a workplace of people of various demographics, but what are you doing to make sure that they have the supportive structures, that they can thrive, that they have an authentic voice within the workplace? And that is where equity and inclusion, you know, kind of come in um, 
in terms of having a strategic plan to make sure that people of diverse backgrounds and demographics, where it's not just limited, because a lot of people feel or still think um, unconsciously diversity is just limited to hiring the next woman or person of, co- of color, yeah. and it goes way yeah. beyond that. Goes yeah. way beyond that. So it's just really um, thinking about it in the simple term that I made of you know being at being invited to dinner and making sure that um, you know the individual or people have a seat at the table and they're introduced and it's enough food to go around to just kind of bring it all together. So that supportive structure. Yeah. So okay. So but let's think about it from I guess the strategic perspective. Mm-hmm. Every, like all the announcements I've seen probably over the last couple of years around the hiring of diversity officers, chief diversity officers, they've been people of color. And I would say, I would argue all um, black. Right. Right. So what do you think the science around that is? Is it about optics and strategy? Do they feel like if I hire someone who has more of a European look, that's a person of color, that could be an issue. What do you think that's about? Well, I think it can be a number of different things. So for example, uh, you've heard the term representation matters, right? If you don't see yourself Mm -hmm. being represented within a profession on television, on Broadway, um, in a particular sport, you know, when it comes to gender, whatever that entails, representation Mm -hmm. matters. So it can mean a number of different things for other people, but it's important where uh, even though diversity includes uh, everyone, right? In terms of, uh, when you think about it in terms of intersectionality, for example, the various identities that people have that can, you know, put you in somewhat of a marginalized group when it comes to, uh, you know, race, age, gender, for example. Um, It really is just about really, Putting those supportive structures in place and making sure that you're, it, it goes beyond the trends and that you're doing what you need to do actively to recruit, to meet the needs of your diverse staff or your diverse workplace, um, that you're keeping up in terms of what's needed within the workplace when it comes to cultural celebrations, when it comes to the way that you market to consumers. Uh, mm-hmm. When it comes to something as simple as job descriptions and how you write job descriptions, if you're trying to, um, you know, recruit a diverse, uh, you know, diverse talent, what are you not including? Do you have bias when it comes to gender coded words where there are words that are coded that are more masculine coded versus, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being coded towards women? So there are a number of different things that comes into play. But I think people are actually getting it, especially in terms of the racial reckoning that's happened this year. Uh, with the unfortunate circumstances of, um, not circumstances, but the unfortunate death of Mr. George George mm-hmm. Floyd, where more mm-hmm. people feel empowered to speak up and support the Black community, you know, around the whole Black Lives Matter movement, where, where many people, as you know, are calling it the second wave of uh, civil rights, but really putting the spotlight on diversity and why it's important to hear and to support and to create e- equitable uh, opportunities for people within the workplace, because it, it's changing. And if you want to be sustainable, you have to be able to be competitive. And what creates that competitive or how do you leverage a competitive workforce? You have a diverse demographic mm-hmm. of people within the workplace. It's as simple as that because they're bringing in diverse perspectives. You know, think about some someone like myself with the experiences that I have 
and the academic credentials to support that as well um, in terms of, of, of any space. And I understand within certain professions, you have to have the um, necessary business acumen for that, but just really think about um, what creates sustainability and the competitive competitiveness um, within the workplace in terms of diversity and, and the research to support that. What do you say to those people who are, who say, well, we we can't find talent in, pe- in people of color. We put out the the announcement or we did the recruitment and we couldn't find anyone in the pool, the talent pool. What do you say to those people? Well, um, it takes uh, and I just want to make sure I answered the, the previous previous questions in terms of, you know, every you know, you're hearing all of these different um different employers hiring a person of a black individual um, or Mm -hmm. a a person of color is because it's important within those spaces, even though, um, again, we have, you know, the Equal Employment Opportunity Act, et cetera, it's important to, um, you know, have people who represent what you're trying to achieve in that space. And some people may disagree with me on that, but it's important in terms of uh, that representation matters uh, reference that I made earlier that as you want to acquire and achieve more diverse talent, that you focus on ensuring that, you know, whoever it is, is leading that charge, is representing it to come to some capacity when it comes to underrepresented communities, whether it be the LGBTQ community, whether it be, um, you know, a person with disabilities and keeping in mind their visible and invisible disabilities, and, um, you know, black and brown individuals as, as well. However you identify, it's important to have that within that space because representation matters. Yeah. What do you say to those who say they can't find talent, um, people of color in the talent pool? Like well, they say, it, oh, we've, because I've heard this yeah. before. Oh, we tried, yeah. we put out the, we did the recruiting. We couldn't find anyone. So it, you know, think of it uh, when it comes to, and, and, and that's a myth, by the way. Uh, when it comes to hiring people of um, people that identify uh, when it comes to race, for example, that there's a lack of diverse talent. I would encourage listeners to think about it in the space where if you go to the gym and you have a goal, you have to work towards it. Mm-hmm. You will not uh, go in there for two or three w- weeks looking to lose pounds or, or gain muscle or whatever you're looking to do and expect a quick fix. It takes work. It's something that um, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's a systemic way of doing it. You know, taking a look at your workplace demographics, um, you know, where are you lacking in terms of representation? What are you looking to achieve? Building that strategic plan, all of that, that that entails. But when it comes to the active process of, you know, recruiting, sourcing, hiring, it, it, it does take work because you have to be intentional. And you have to be um, in a space where, you know, not necessarily, okay, I'm going to, you know, the next five people I'm going to hire are going to be black people because obviously there are laws uh, in uh, certain places where you can't Mm -hmm. put a specific uh, number when it comes to, um, uh, when you put a specific number, when it comes to, to um, even wanting to do the right thing in the space of hiring people of, um, diverse backgrounds, you have to be mindful of the equal employment opportunity laws. And then affirmative action is a totally uh, different space. But I will say, um, you know, it takes work and it's it's something that's not going to happen overnight. And then for some people, it, it's just, 
you know, the work and not really understanding some of the myths that they're still holding on to when it comes to hiring diverse talent, where, you know, if you're hiring for, for diverse talent, it's going to, um, it will take some time because you have to, to take a look at your hiring process, who is a part of the, you know, interview process. Does everyone have unconscious bias training, taking a look at your applicant tracking system? It's a, it's a number of different things that you have to, to do to kind of break down those barriers. Um, so it takes work to do that. It's, you know, to go against the status quo, it's not where you're going to wake up and, and just write a couple of new policies and it changes the game. It, it takes work. It takes work because you have to take a look at your foundation, at your processes, you know, who's conducting the interviews? Do you have structured interviews? It's, it's a whole number of different things that you have to look at. And um, it, take, it takes a while to actually achieve that because you have to, to do the work on the back end to actually achieve those results. But it's not to say that there is a lack of diverse talent out there. Absolutely not. There's plenty of, of, of people who are uh, way more qualified um, when it comes to the opportunities that, that employers are presenting, but on the back end, when it comes to who, um, is doing the recruiting and the processes in place, uh, that that's where people get stuck a little bit in terms mm -hmm. of expectations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. That actually clarifies it for me. It's about that intentionality and then all the pieces you mentioned around mm -hmm. that. And I do find that a lot of organizations, companies, they're not intentional and some could be due to their resources, mm -hmm. I, I think, or just even leadership, you know? Um, it's but a, it's yeah, a combination. Yeah. It's a combination, but it's not just, it goes beyond a statement of saying that you want mm -hmm. to do something. You have to actively do it as with everything in life. Uh, you have to work at it and be intentional. Let's think about 2021. What is something you hope to reimagine for yourself in 2021? What do I intend to reimagine? Just reimagining the way that we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I just want to put that out there for others, right? And, and just taking it away from myself a little bit, but mm -hmm. reimagining the way that we think about this work uh, when it comes to the example um, or the question that we just went over in terms of hiring diverse talent. And I think it'll get easier uh, once we embrace that it will take some work because, then, again, you have to break down those institutional uh, and structural barriers to ensure that these things happen. But, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So where can people find you, Nicole? Because I'm sure after this um, episode, people are going to want to ask you more questions, you know, because right. this, like you said, after the death of George Floyd, there was this just uptick. I mean, it was, uh -huh. it was good to be black, so to speak. And I'm sure there are a lot of questions around the topic and, and diversity and inclusion and kind of setting up these systems in your particular workplace, workplace. So where can people reach out to you, connect with you so they can get those questions answered if they want to? Thank you for asking. Well, uh, for your listeners, I can be reached um, at my website, smartedisolutions.com. There is a page on there or a section on there where you can, um, you know, just click, click on the link and you can send me an email, comment, uh, request 
uh, anything of the above. And my email address is nsmart at smartedisolutions.com. I am also on Facebook, which isn't very active, and Instagram as well, Smart EDI Solutions. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who are listening, um, I will put all of Nicole's contact information in the show notes. Don't worry if you're driving and listening or doing something where you don't have a pencil or pen to get it down. It will be in the show notes. I am Nicole Smart, and I'm disrupting balance by embracing that diversity, equity, and Inclusion is not just about a nine to five, but a way of life. Thank you for listening to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. Hey, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're not following me yet, find me at Disrupting Balance on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And guess what? I'm on Clubhouse at Hanifa Barnes ESQ. And if you want free tools or any and all things Disrupting Balance, check out the website, www.disruptingbalance.com. Talk soon.